This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bioproven 40 OS. The nitrogen you need, now on seed. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. There are two common challenges farmers often face. They want to farm more acres, but can't afford to do so. And they can't find a way to increase the profits on the acres they already farm. My guest this week found out he could greatly increase profits on a relatively small number of acres. And it's a model that can work for many of us. That's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. One of the biggest and most important expenses I have as a corn producer is nitrogen. That's why I was interested in Pivot Bio and have been a customer for four years now. Pivot Bio Proven OS provides a more reliable method for delivering nitrogen to corn. One Pro Box of Pivot Bio Proven 40 OS has the equivalent on-seed nitrogen to replace as much as 1,200 gallons of anhydrous, 1,700 gallons of UAN 28%, or 5 tons of urea. Pivot Bio Proven 40 on-seed isn't lost to leaching, denitrification, or volatilization. Side-by-side comparisons show Pivot Bio plants have 14% more implant nitrogen and 12% more biomass compared to untreated plants. To learn more, just talk to your local sales rep or go to pivotbio.com. I think you'll really like hearing from Josh Payne. He has been able to build wealth for his family and others by managing the acres he already farmed in new ways. No doubt some of his neighbors, and perhaps his own family, wondered what he was doing with some of his best farm ground in the state. But it turns out that it was a model for increasing profits, protecting the land, and helping families and communities. Plus, it may just be something you could incorporate as well. Here's his story. Josh, talk about your route into farming. Your family had been in farming for quite a while, but when you came back, things began to change quite a bit. Yeah, so even just us coming to the farm was a little bit different. Um, It started, like, I used to be a teacher in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, My wife worked in international business. She's fluent in Spanish and just has these fantastic, uh, like, business skill set, right? But we started off walking across Spain. We We did a pilgrimage called the Camino de Santiago. She decided she wanted to, in the middle of this, to quit her job and become a teacher and move to a small town. Um, So that just ended us somehow back in the small town that we grew up in. And I was a teacher there in the small town and the basketball coach and farmed with my grandpa as well. And um, I had to learn a lot of it. I had to learn tractor mechanics. I had to learn planter. I had to learn all the seed corn stuff because we were conventional corn and soy. And just as, as we went, it was something I didn't really enjoy. It was, uh, it was sitting in a tractor for long hours a day, and I like to move. I like to be out in nature. And sitting just, I just don't do it well. There were several dark years there for me. Yeah, I guess it would be, it would be a good way to say it. But um, the regenerative ag thing kind of came along, and I kind of caught the soil health bug. And I um, through a lot of conversations that were hard and uh, difficult and argumentative, uh, we decided to start into cover crops. And so my grandpa made the decision. That's a really important thing. Like, I didn't make the decision. Like, he made the decision that we should try um, some cover crops. So we, we kind of jumped head first into cover crops. Then we moved into a, a continuous living cover situation. Um, that led us down to, that led us down the rabbit hole of soil health where we ended up in, uh, chestnuts. We planted 30 acres of chestnuts as a perennial crop. 
And then eventually um, I found out I'm allergic to herbicides. Uh, they create an anaphylactic shock in my throat. Just uh, won the genetic lottery for this one, right? So we had to like do a complete 180 um, pivot in our operation. And in the course of about a month and a half, we found out I was allergic to this. We confirmed it with several doctors. Um, we built, um, we started building fence and we had 200 sheep. You made a lot of changes very quickly. I'm, I'm curious, you know, where you live, if people aren't familiar with that area, lots of pretty good land with a lot of row crops. So I'm sure making the switch to go over to livestock and even sheep had to be a huge change. Um, yeah, you could you could say that. Yeah, we have some of the best ground in the country. You know, it's it's easily 200 bushel corn. Um, and not only do we have some of the best ground in the area, but our ground is particularly good. Everybody knows this. It's Charlie Payne's, you know, Charlie Payne's farm. And the question was always, why are you taking Charlie Payne's row crops, like his ground, and turning it into grazing? Um, that, there's, a, there's a lot of heads that turned there very quickly. And so that was a... Like it was, it was a different thing in our community, and it was a hard thing to get past, especially for my grandpa. He's like he's worried about that. He's worried about his legacy. He's worried about, um, you know, what people are going to think about him as he as he goes. It, yeah, it, it was it was tough. <laughs> Today, you are totally out of row crops. Is that right? You you cash rent a little of the ground, but everything that you actively farm is grazing. Is that correct? Yeah, we uh, we had to make the decision to do that largely because of that allergy. Um, and yeah, we, we sold the combine and so we, we still plant things. We still plant corn and we plant soy and we just graze it. We, we uh, use our portable fence and we strip graze through it. Um, that works. I mean, that works really nicely for us. We do cash rent some ground as well, but yeah, it's all, um, it's all wholesale sheep with a little bit of direct marketing on top of it. But knowing what you know now, would you tell me that, you know, the allergy will set that aside, although that was very important in the story you are more profitable grazing than you would have been with the row crops. Is that right? Yeah. And the really important thing is we're more, we're more profitable grazing sheep um, than we are on the row crops. Uh, Like sheep math is actually, you know, sheep math is pretty good. We can have about three ewes per acre. They have one and a half lambs per acre. Um, So that's four and a half, you know, lambs that we're going to sell per year per acre. Um, You may end up making about 200 bucks a lamb, anywhere between 150 and 250, but just kind of the average is around 200. Um, and that ends up being close to $900 gross per acre. And we spend about 125 to 150 And so, like, the profit margin is very good, even just on wholesale sheep. And then when you direct market on top of that, you almost double, like, you almost double that for the portion that you end up selling. And so, yeah, so we're very happy with the profits. But, you know, we're also happy with what's, with what's happened to the land. You know, we, we, have, we have a bunch of land that's increasing in soil organic matter. We have land that we haven't had to fertilize for the three years that we have had sheep now um, our kids get to be involved uh, they get to go out and help me move animals they get to help me work animals I get to move fence every day I get to I get to walk through I know that sounds weird like to want to enjoy like to want to go out and move sheep when it's zero but it's actually like my favorite part of the day every day so so, so yeah it's it's not just like the profitability there's so many there's so many just fringe benefits that I get from a change from a tractor-based career profession to a, a walking moving based uh, like occupation people listening to this are certainly familiar with the grazing systems and might involve cattle and you do have some cattle but how did you land on sheep was it just mostly the profitability and you said we can profit more by running sheep than cattle yeah I literally was in a in a farm store one time and I happened to run into a banker and I was talking to him about how like, I was talking just in the 
like the fence section, right? And I was like, hey, I'm going to get, get some cattle and we're going to switch our row crop stuff over. And he goes, you should think about sheep. <laughs> I was like, why? He goes, I'm a banker. I would loan you money to get sheep. I wouldn't loan you money to start a cattle enterprise. And I asked him why. And he starts explaining sheep math to me. And so I thought, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. And then I just happened to go to a, I spoke at a farm conference about cover crops. And this lady comes up to me afterwards. She goes, I know somebody that you should meet. This person has 300 sheep that they want to sell. Um, they probably wouldn't sell all of them, but like, but if you would like to do that, I, you should get to know this person. So I called him up and a couple weeks later, the sheep were on my farm. So talk about this grazing system because you're in an area where it's mostly fescue and so certainly you can grow some fescue well at times of the year, but you need grazing year round. So how do you do it? Yeah, because we're like we're a forage-based operation. You know, we're, we we actually sprout some barley, turn them into microgreens if we need like some supplement su- some supplemental energy. Um, but yeah, so the nice thing is we also have all the equipment from row crops. We have our corn planter still set up. We have our our grain drill um, still set up. We have the mowers. We have the big tractors that we need. And so we're actually able to go in and plant a bunch of annuals. Um, sometimes that's a summer annual. It's a big summer diverse mix that we can graze that has a high energy curve, high protein for the summer, and uh, lots of lots of pounds of dry matter. Um, we can do the same thing in the fall with oats and rye and radishes and brassicas, which also has a high dry matter and a high energy. And so that enables us to fill the slumps, like the gaps that would normally be in a, like in a fescue grazing forage program that you'd have to supplement with grain. So the, the grazing ground that you have, you have fescue there, but are you always then planting something else into that? Or do you do it by paddocks? And then you have different paddocks that have different types of grasses or summer annuals and so forth. Well, because we were in a lucky situation. We had a blank slate. Uh, we had 300 acres right there at our house that were contiguous that were all just row crops. Like they came, when they came out of corn, they came out of soy, we could put them into whatever we wanted to. So we actually don't have much fescue. We have a lot of orchard grass pastures with clovers and um, lespedeses that are kind of into that as well. There's also some some paddocks that we designed that are always annual that we know we're going to go in and have a cool season and a warm season and then a cool season and just maintain that. Um, and then we're, so we get to establish whatever we want to in ours. So if you're talking to somebody that isn't starting with a blank slate, let's they already have grazing ground, how would you do it differently? Or would you tell them, just go ahead and kill all the grass and start with a blank slate. What's the best way to do it? Well, I mean, some people do that. I think it'd be hard to feed your animals if you just killed all the grass. Um, yeah, uh, like there's some things that you can do with, uh, like with intensive grazing where you can like set back fescue enough that you can plant some cool season annuals or you can plant some like, like specifically warm season annuals. You could do that. Um, there's also, um, I, I mean, probably the easiest thing to do would be to start in with a clover and a lespedeza and frost seed it and trample that in. That gets you that summer growth curve. That's so context specific, depending upon what people have. Like, and it's hard for me to get out of that because we have the equipment. If you don't have a drill, it's hard for me to tell somebody to go in and spray out a field and go put in, you know, cool season annuals. But like, uh, but it's like just, uh, I guess the best thing that I would say is think about, think through those gaps that you have and where on your farm that you can do that, like that you can fill those gaps. You can fill those gaps with trees if you really wanted to like with mulberries um, are a fantastic forage summer it'd take a little bit longer but like the the best thing that i could say is like how do you like look at your farm look at the spaces and figure out how you can have plants do the work that you or that, that you want them to do. For example, um, we're getting ready to, to use our flamer. We have an industrial propane-based flamer uh, to flame out some sections that we can go in and plant 10-foot swaths of switchgrass 
um, and we're going to use those in place because we don't have any um, we don't have any trees for cover. We don't have any shelter for the winter because we're a row cro- we used to be a row crop farm, right? So then we can use that switchgrass very quickly in one year, and we can have all the shelter that we need in a paddock. You mentioned microgreens earlier. Explain to people what that is and how that works because that's something you're growing in your garage. Yeah, boy, I sound like a foodie when I say that, don't I? Yeah, so microgreens is something that my wife and my sister actually talk about a lot because they're, they're really into health food. We've become into like, eating really healthy, and people talk about superfoods, and people talk about wheatgrass and juicing wheatgrass and putting it in smoothies. And it's a, it's a very, like for health-conscious people, it's becoming a very accepted process. You could take um, broccoli sprouts, and you could sprout them, you put them on your salad, and you get all the, all the nutrients from that entire seed, and it's in this little bitty small shoot. So it's a pretty accepted thing in health food circles. And my sister said, well, um, there's some dairies out here in Nevada who are growing microgreens and feeding them to their dairy cattle. So we thought we started thinking about that. I was talking to a couple of friends and it turns out you look at the they have incredibly high fat content in the microgreens. They, they it, it, the starches become almost all sugar, which then creates a, like an almost immediately available energy source. You don't have to go through the same processes and it means that you can you need about five percent or five times less of what you would what you would need in like say a barley grain, um, and they're really high in protein, so they actually fit all the needs that we have for supplemental grain, and so we started kind of playing around with them on some small scales and um, started talking to some people who had done it and yeah it turns out that if we can if we do it right and we have the animals in the right spot and we provide hay with them to make sure they balance out the dry and the cut and kind of the wet. Like we can, we can match feedlot gains on pasture. So what kind of gains can you achieve? Because you have done very well with, with this. Yeah, so th- this last year, I mean, the best numbers that I would have are from this last year. We started, we bought some feeder steers in February. And from February up until like the beginning of May was when we were doing this. We ended up gaining right at three pounds per day on uh, dead crabgrass, hay, and oh, you know these microgreens. So, and on the, and by the way, that's on pasture in the cold in Missouri. The microgreens, you just bring them out on a big tray. How do you put these out in the pasture so they eat them? Yeah, so we we grow them in our, and we grow them in our uh, garage, and we have these stacks, and so there we have six days of it. And we have day one through six, and we'll take this they take a big long tray. It's one and a half foot by six foot. We'll put it on our shoulder. We take it to an old manure spreader that we bought like at an auction somewhere. We took off the beaters. There's an apron on there. We just drive it behind the four-wheeler. We, um, we're, we drive it in the new section that we're going to put in. So if we're going to open up the steers into the new section, we'll say we, we're going to feed this at 3% of an uh, animal's body weight per day. So if they weigh 1,000 pounds, that steer is going to get 30 pounds of microgreens per day. So if we have 10 out there, um, we're going to run 300 pounds of those out there. That's six trays that we need. So we'll put six trays on our, microgre- or on our manure spreader. We'll run them out there. We'll also then unroll a bale of hay for the dry matter that they need, and then we'll let them into that paddock. And it is the f- most, it is the craziest thing to watch this. It's, they're, they're literally like leaping, like leaping lambs or leaping calves. We'll open up the gate. They'll kind of run and they'll kind of jump through and they'll prance their way to each of the microgreen piles. Uh, and they just, they'll eat it, they'll throw it, they'll flip it up and they'll like, it's, it's, so yeah, it's, it's a fun thing to watch. So some people listening to this will say, well, Josh, this is all great, but how much labor does this take? And to you, 
I don't know if labor is a problem. You have been able to not only source it, but you like the extra labor. Is that right? <laughs> some of it's supplied by you, but some of it's supplied by others. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to say it. There's, it's, we, we tell people this. Like, microgreens aren't for everybody to grow for animals, especially because it's, I mean, it's a lot of work. But again, it takes us 45 minutes a day to do this, like 45 minutes of scooping out grain. And for me, that's a, that's a valuable thing. That's a, like that becomes a source of meaning, a source of purpose, a source of activity. And so, yeah, the, so like, but I mean, everybody does, like if, if I just, if it takes me 45 minutes plus 15 minutes to move steers, that's an hour a day. Like that's not too much of a work day. So the labor is not an issue, but it's also like what I've seen is when people see it and they see the product and they, they, they see the wonderfully marbled steaks that we have that are grass finished, healthy with all the omega-3 stuff that you want to talk about health, you know, health benefits of grass finished animals. They see the products, they see what the animals do. There's something about it that people just like to be a part of. Uh, we have a 14-year-old, her name is Dakota right now, who works, who her parents, like we're friends with her parents, and we were hanging out at the Super Bowl party, and she was like, hey, I'm just kind of bored. Is there anything on the farm that we could do? And we're like, absolutely, thank you. And so she comes out, and she's learning to unroll fence. She's learning to carry microgreen trays and can do the whole process now. And we just find that, like for her, she enjoys it. She enjoys being out there. And the biggest thing is it provides meaning for her. It provides purpose. Uh, it's something that a lot of high school kids just don't have. You mentioned the marbling of your steaks. We haven't talked about your direct marketing, both uh, lamb and beef. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, you know, our primary industry, our, like we've designed everything so that we can have a wholesale market for everything that we do. Um, but then we can also add value on top of that with direct marketing. That's our, just kind of our business plan. But yeah. So then we like we take a certain number of our animals. You know, we t- right now we're finishing 100 lambs. We just got done finishing this winter on the microgreens um, and we'll always have 15 steers kind of at the same time. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll take those, we'll finish those, we'll process them. And then we go to a farmer's market every Saturday and every Wednesday in Overland Park. And like for me as a, you know, as a outgoing, energetic kind of person who likes to talk to people, it's probably my favorite part of the week because I get to go talk to people and find out what they care about, find out what they like, find out like what matters to them. And then to see if uh, like what we have can help them out. So that the, the farmer's markets, it's fun. It, it has money, but it's, it, it, it's fun for me. You mentioned the marbling. You're achieving, you believe, just as good a marbling as if you were on a grain-fed diet. Is it the microgreens that do it? What is it that, that gives the meat then that texture? Yeah, um, so, I mean, like you can, grass finish a, you can grass finish an animal at the right time with good marbling if, you've, if you maintain the right gains. The problem is maintaining the gains, gains through those slumps that you might have, whether it's the fescue slump in the summer or whether it's winter when you don't have enough. So that's why you always have to supplement grain, right? Um, so, yeah, if we can so – we w- and if we can fill those slumps with the right forages, that's a big start to where we can maintain, you know, two and a half to three pounds per day in all those times. And then we can throw the microgreens on top of that. They're really high in sugar content. The starch, they go from like 85% starch to 85% sugar, highly digestible. And then the funny thing is because the animals don't have to work, not only do they marble well and they put on good intermuscular, like good intermuscular fat, but they also like just, it changes the tenderness profile of the, of the meat. My favorite story is this old retired farmer from a guy close to us, and he he comes to our market, and he the first thing he says is, "You guys do grass fed beef." Well, yeah, and he says, "Well, I don't like grass fed beef, but I'll try your hamburger." And we're like, "Well, you might try ours. Just you know, give it a shot." He goes, "I've tried every grass fed animal in 
um, in Kansas City, and I can't find one that I like. He's like, I'm a retired corn farmer. I used to have my own feedlot. He's like, I just cannot eat a, a grass-fed steak. And he goes, but my wife's on this health kick, and she wants to eat healthy meat, and she's not going to let me eat corn-fed meat anymore, so I just don't eat steak. I'm like, try one. So we give him one. We just say, here, try one of these steaks. He goes home. They cook it up. He calls me up the next day. He's like, I want to buy 15 pounds of your steaks. And we're like, well, okay, like you can do that. He goes, it was the, he's like, it was the most tender, the richest flavor that we can have. I can't believe that it's grass fed. So like we're, that we're finding that kind of story is a very, like very normal down to earth people who know what, what good steak tastes like and they like our product. You're married and have kids. You've got a grandfather on the farm. You've got a sister uh, and you've got other folks you employ and you're doing all of this off of 300 acres. Is that about right? Yeah, so um, currently we have two full-time jobs on 300 acres of grazing sheep. Pretty soon we'll have 30 acres of chestnuts that'll be online um, for like in intensive production. And there's like high value in there's high value in this in chestnut trees and chestnut orchards, especially in our part um, of the world. But yeah, it's a there's a there's a lot that goes into that. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of what what goes here. How are we going to do this? What's the next step? And how are we going to think like 12 months out in terms of forage? And well, we tend to measure farms sometimes in numbers of acres, and I guess there's nothing wrong with that. But for you, you have certainly been able to do a lot with a small amount of acreage. And I suppose you would say, is that a good model for people that say, well, I don't have a lot of acreage or land is expensive. I could do more with with less and turn a, a good profit, a great profit off of the acres I have. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the the, the model that we like to talk about is the farm within a farm model. Um, I, if uh, One of the things that I love to say about farming is often we think about revenue per acre, but I think that we should start to think more about acres per job. How many acres does it take us um, to have a job. So we have in our area the prevailing wisdom, you know, and it's different in every area, right? But the prevailing area, you need about a thousand acres for a corn and soy family. So if I have three kids um, and we have 800 acres now, we need to pick up 3,000 acres. So that way all of my kids can have farms. But my, my problem with that is like those acres don't come from nowhere. They come from somebody else. And if I'm picking up 3,000 acres, that means there's fewer farmers in the area, you know, whether that's three or six or whatever it is. And I don't, I don't want to see, I don't want to see small towns continue to ship people off. I don't want to see like the good, smart, young kids go somewhere else. Right. And so if we can think if instead of a thousand acres per job, if we can move that back down to 500 or 200 or 100 or 50 or you know 10 right like on our 30 acres of chestnuts if the university of missouri's projections are right like we're going to be able to have four jobs on 30 acres you know that's seven and a half acres per job like that would that would go a long way in like dramatically changing the the landscape of rural communities but i think the biggest thing is this doesn't have to be just independent of commodity ag like um if if i have a thousand acres but, and I have a kid, I don't, maybe I don't have to pick up a thousand acres. Maybe I can take those four acres in this corner of a field that's really wet instead of tiling it. Maybe I can plant a bunch of elderberries there and I can give that to my kid. And those four acres of elderberries and processing elderberries don't take up much room and they could produce a full-time job um, for somebody who wants to work at that. So now I have labor for the farm. I have a spot for my son or daughter to land. 
and like and they're there like they're there with their family and and but like and that's that's replicable there's lots of corners on farms that aren't profitable if we could find those corners and those edges and turn those into highly valuable crops that um that fit that that soil that that could also do the same thing and that's the model that i like to talk about because that includes big and small ag to wind up tell people how they find you and talk about the name of your farm because that has significance as well yeah, so um, our name is Rusted Plowshare. Um, it harkens back to the book of Isaiah. It's, uh, there's a prophecy, it's a, and Hosea actually as well. Um, it's the prophecy where it says they will turn, their, they will beat their swords into plowshares. The idea is like their instruments of destruction, their instruments of war will become instruments of life and healing. And our, like what we want to do is we want to take all those things that we used to do to destroy, um, like that destroy, like tillage has become the popular thing, right? And we can let those instruments of destruction, we can just let them rust. We can let them be so that we can hopefully uh, bring forth life in our farm and bring forth life in our community. So that's our name, Rusted Plowshare. And we're on Facebook and Instagram. I don't do a whole lot on that. My wife's really good at that. You can find us on our website at, at uh, rustedplowshare.com. Josh, I appreciate the time. Thank you. I hope you'll check out Josh's website, and you can catch him at the Overland Park Farmer's Market in the Kansas City area. Thanks for listening to this week's show. Remember, you can follow Farming the Countryside and our daily show, American Countryside, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Just type in Farming the Countryside or American Countryside. And you can hear these shows in a variety of ways as well at farmingthecountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or your favorite podcast platform. If you miss one of our shows, just use those platforms to go back and catch some other topics of interest as well. I appreciate you joining me. I'm Andrew McCray. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot BioProven 40 OS. The nitrogen you need, now on seed. Learn more at pivotbio.com.